Okay. All right, Miss Perfect. I hope you're ready for this first one. It's a doozy. So we have a um, female here actually at our Chandler campus asking, in the past, her husband was an alcoholic and detached from herself and her children for most of their marriage over the past 20 years. Recently, he's working towards a relationship with God and now with them as a family. And she has built such a tall wall during this hurt, during this battle, that she wants to protect her emotional state. She wants to protect herself, that she's finding it hard to allow him back into his heart, into their marriage, and um, holding those walls and grudges. Even though she knows she loves him, she wants to be a part of it, what she's asking is, how do I heal the past and commit to their future together in a way that God would want? Great question, and a very difficult one at the same time. I think, I think there's a couple things. I think the first thing is there has to be forgiveness. If there's not forgiveness, then there's, it's going to be almost impossible to move forward. So um, that's not always easy to do, but I think you've got to figure out how to clean the blackboard so that you can give him the opportunity to move forward on this. I think the second thing is that he could be doing the right things or what he thinks are the right things to regain that respect and that trust from you. And um, you don't believe that that's what's happening. So I think it's very important that you communicate with him what those things are that he can do to regain that trust in you. And then you thank him and you praise him for doing that. I think um, you, first you've got to forgive, you've got to make sure you've cleaned the blackboard, and then you've got to communicate with him so he knows what he can do to rebuild that trust. Excellent. Is, is there anything well, more Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I think it was really important, Lisa, that you just said, this thing of communicating with him what he needs to do. I, I think women so often want their men to read their minds and to know, well, if he really loved me, he'd know that's what he's supposed to do for me. And ladies, men are stupid. I, I, I don't know any other way. True. They're stupid. True. And, and you know, I heard a guy say one day, uh, when, when God took the rib out of Adam, it was his mind-reading rib that he took. You know, and men just have no capacity to do this, ladies. And so one of the most powerful things that you can do for him is say, hey, I'm trying to rebuild trust with you. And if you would do this, this would be so meaningful to me if I saw this happening in your life. And, and you, you're literally coaching him in how to do that, how to re-win that trust. Um, that way he's not spending a ton of effort doing 20 things he thinks are helpful, right. and they're not because he's a man and he's dumb, right? And instead you point him in the right direction. Yeah, because I thought you could read my mind. There you go. I'm very disappointed now. We're on the same page, man. Yeah, I do. There's a that is, keep it simple, stupid. There you go. Absolutely. We love the kids, man. right? Keep Absolutely. It simple. Men do not know. No. Yeah. Well, knowing that, how do you guys talk about boundaries and what are some specific examples of boundaries that set in a marriage? Lisa, can you tackle that one? Boundaries and what are examples of boundaries that can be set in a marriage that need to be set? Sure, and I think for us, these are things that have changed over the years. Um, a few years back, I went to my husband and said, you know, I just think it's important that you do not go to restaurants or out to coffee um, with other women. 
I mean, even if I know you have no interest in them whatsoever, because it's about that appearance, someone walks in and says, oh, I saw our pastor in the restaurant or having coffee with someone and it wasn't his wife, and then just starts gossip. So that's one of the boundaries that we've set. And I think in uh, his role, it's really important that, um, because he is in the limelight, that we protect that. Mm-hmm. Lynn, how did so, you respond? I hated that. it. You I hated thought it. it was a stupid idea. So, um, no, because, you know, here's what I said back to my wife. I said, Lisa, look, I would never go to lunch with somebody I was, you know, felt any emotional attachment to because I want to preserve our marriage and, and, you know, I would never do that. So, by the time I go to lunch with, you know, whether that would be my administrative assistant or maybe one of the women that are on staff, because we have women in very high executive roles amongst our staff, and it, you know, it only seems appropriate to have some of those conversations. And I said, Lisa, I, if I had even the inkling of attraction, I, I wouldn't do that because I, I wouldn't want, you know, to head that direction. So you can just know that if I ask a gal to lunch or if I go have a meeting, you know, somewhere over coffee, I, you know, and I'm doing it in public, and yet I could tell as we had that conversation that her heart was pretty fixed, that she, she really felt this was an unnecessary um, uh, potential for someone to raise an issue or to, you know, to, to think something. Um, and, and, and she just basically said, Lynn, I'm really, really, really asking you not to do this. And I chose in that moment, and it's been uncomfortable. I mean, there's been a few times that I've, I've been with, again, executive uh, gals whoops, on our staff who you go, boy, it'd be really comfortable to go have a meeting somewhere right now. And I've had to say, hey, can someone come with us? You know, um, or we've held that meeting in the offices, you know, where everybody was there. Um, but I've done that out of honor for her. I've done that because I, I wanted her heart to see me saying, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor that part of your request and your heart, um, and I've chosen to do that. <clears throat> and just to add to that, for me, it wasn't about not trusting my husband at all. Yeah. It was more honoring him in his role, and it was a protection. And I think wives, it's very important that we have those boundaries, and men, that you have those boundaries, and you set that to protect your relationship and your marriage. I know what he's doing all the time. And it's because I'm trying to protect him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I enjoy hearing in that, too, is you did the uncomfortable, even though it didn't make sense, which for men, sometimes it just has to make sense. Prove it. Right. You did what she needed, and right. you met that need. And you know, I, I think at the end of the day, the sh- huge shift that has to happen in the heart of a man is to say, hey, my win is not about winning the argument. My win is about making her thrilled to be married to me. And, and as long as that becomes the focus of my heart, then that steers a whole bunch of my decisions differently. Because I would still say to you to this day, you know, I, I, I think I'm okay, but I won her heart by saying, you know what, Lisa, I'm going to defer to you on this one. I'm going to choose to honor you in this one. And at the end of the day, that's a much bigger win than winning the argument. That's a yeah. mic drop moment. 
<laughs> I think, man, that's what we could say, our mic drop moments when we win our wife's heart. And that's yeah. the fight we want to have is yeah. always fighting for that heart. That's great. Thank you. So here's a fight that when there's losing involved. So if no matter how faithful someone is, a spouse in a marriage, and they're sticking with it, they're doing all the right things, but their spouse continues to disrespect their marriage vows, when is the moment when they quit fighting, when they mm. give up, tap out, when you want to tackle that one? All right, so I'm assuming when they talk about disrespecting marriage vows that they're talking about this person's being unfaithful to yeah. the marriage vows. Yes. So uh, there's a passage in Scripture. So if you've got your Bibles, we can go there uh, together real quick. It's Matthew uh, chapter 19. And Jesus really talks about uh, this very topic. And if you're not familiar, you can go to the back of your Bible, work to the left, you're going to find this book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's Matthew chapter 19. We can probably jump down to verse 8. I think we can get it from there. Uh, here's, here's what it says. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Is Jesus replied. Some people were talking to Jesus about the very topic of divorce. And, uh, and Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. Uh, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a man, a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. To which Jesus says, well, and if that's your choice. But um, it really says here, hey, um, the one escape clause, especially for Christians, is if there's marital unfaithfulness. And I think what's being described in this particular question is interesting because I think it's one of the uh, mistakes that we make all the time in marriages, and especially when there's been marital unfaithfulness. So just for argument's sake on this one, we're going to say uh, the husband's been unfaithful. Uh, the wife has been faithful. And in this moment, um, as that unfaithfulness has been exposed or uncovered, he apparently is not repentant because she said, hey, he's going out and doing this repetitively. So it's not a moment where he gets caught and he goes, oh, I, I was stupid for a moment or I was stupid for a season and I want my marriage and I'm completely repentant about this and I, I want to work to restore it. Instead, this becomes one of those blame-mongering moments, well, I wouldn't have cheated if you hadn't. And it's only because, and, and we, we do one of, and if you would change, then maybe I would stay in the marriage. Not understanding that this act of physical marital unfaithfulness is a game changer. It is a killer. And there is no excuse. There's, there's no reason that then justifies this violation of the promise between a man and a woman. That's not to say that there weren't things that irritated you, there weren't things that needed to be fixed along the way, but this is a line, Jesus said. When you cross that line, you've changed the conversation in the game. And here's where this thing, I think, goes really, really ugly. She was faithful, but she wants to fix. He was unfaithful, and he's not sure. He wants to fix. As she stays in this relationship, you realize she shifts all the power to him. Because in that moment, um, he's able to say, hey, look, uh, I cheated on you. You didn't leave me. It didn't end the marriage. So now apparently I can still cheat because all it does is make you sad, but it doesn't change anything in the relationship, and I can still have my marriage. 
He has the best of both worlds. He has his wife and his family, and he has his mistress too. And one of the fatal flaws I think we make in this moment is, is allowing him to stay in that position of not sure and yet working on the marriage. And what I would suggest to any woman who's in this moment to say, don't ever enter this syndrome. If he cheats, if she cheats, and their response is, well, you know, I don't know if I want this marriage, and you're going to have to fix a hundred things, and there's not true repentance, my suggestion is always to separate. Let him feel like, let her feel like what it's like not to have the benefits of marriage. Let him, let him feel a little taste of what life is like without you on the deal. If he then comes with repentance, if she then comes with repentance and says, I've been an idiot, I'm sorry, I'm willing to be faithful, I'm willing to work on the relationship, then you can make a decision at that point, and you can decide, am I going to reinvest in this marriage with this person? Am I going to reengage or not? But the problem is, the minute you say, I'm going to keep trying to fix my marriage, and their heart is not in it you literally have surrendered all the power to them, and they basically get their cake and eat it too in that moment. It, it's an absolutely untenable situation, and I have never seen this scenario. He's unrepentant, she's unrepentant, the other spouse, the victim spouse, the offended spouse is the one trying to fix it. I have never seen that marriage healed. It does not heal because it requires repentance, and you can't, you can't fix something without repentance. If I can add too, it's not a threat. It's a plan. There's a focus. You're meaning yeah. it. You're going to mean it that you're going to step Yeah, it's not about being a fight. It's about saying, hey, you've, you've violated the marriage. Why should you get the benefits of the marriage? What, why should you have the same access to the kids? Why should you have the same access to our marriage bed? Why should you have meals that I cook? I mean, why should you have the benefits of marriage when you violated marriage and are unwilling to work on marriage? True act of courage. I mean, that's a courageous moment. Yeah. Anything you want to add, Lisa? I got a good one for you. Okay. All right, here we go. You can't, you can't uh, nudge your spouse though, on this one, okay? <laughs> Promises. How can, how can a wife ask her husband to do something without sounding like a nag? Hmm. Oh, my. <laughs> I wish I could tell you this came very easily for me. Um, I think I have found over the years of marriage that it's about the tone and the timing. I think those the two T's, a tone, a voice, and the timing. Hmm. So, um, wouldn't you agree? So, yeah. I've, I've learned that yes. the way in which I go and I ask, would you can please consider taking the trash out, <laughs> has gone to, um, instead of saying, and why haven't you taken the trash out yet? Because that is his job, I think. so whatever. Um, <laughs> just say, hey, would you please consider taking the trash out within the next, and then give it a period of time that makes sense, because if he's in the middle of gaming, <laughs> which he loves to game, um, I know that that could be 10, 15 minutes before he's going to win that last fight and he can't walk away because it doesn't save on the game. Um. <laughs> that, that's what you tell him. 
<laughs> and of course, I always believe him. So, um, so I try very hard to watch my tone in which I say. And I, I have to tell you, sometimes it's difficult because especially if I know someone's coming over or we have something going on and I just see little things that still need to get done, I have to stop and breathe and pay attention, be intentional on the way that I approach him. Because truthfully, if he comes after me at the last minute, why aren't you ready? Why aren't, I mean, I take it the same way. I actually feel attacked as well. And so I've tried very hard to be intentional on my tone and on giving him time because that's what I do with, that's what we did with our son too. I wouldn't, same thing. Mm -hmm. And I would just reinforce, I think, guys, ladies, I cannot tell you how much that's helped our relationship because Lisa's a strong gal and there was a moment she'd come in and say, hey, Lynn, you still haven't carried out the trash. Well, the tone of that just made me want to, I'll get to and it he when does. I get to it, right? <laughs> so the power, thank you, the power <laughs> of her coming and saying, hey, Lynn, um, before dinner, can you make sure the trash gets out? Suddenly gives me a ton of control. It doesn't feel like this demand. It feels much more like a request. And at that point, 99% of the time, I'm going to tell you that it just goes in my reasonable category and I get to it. I put a mental note in my mind and say, hey, before dinner, I need to get to the trash. And then if I forget, it's, it's still easier for her to come and say, hey, Lynn, you realize dinner time's in about 10 minutes and I still need the trash out. And, and it's okay. It doesn't sound like nagging in that moment when she does that. If she came in the middle of my game and just said, hey, Lynn, I need the trash carried out now, that has a totally different tone, totally different feel to it for me. So, yeah. Absolutely. We're conquering the world. Huh? Well, yeah, you know what? Those orcs have got to be defeated, and the trash can wait. Modern day heroes. There you go, man. It's there our recharge, too. I keep telling my wife, this is me recharging, babe. Absolutely. So I have energy need. for yeah, later. For later. Yeah. Yes. There you go. <laughs> You're welcome, man. There You're you welcome. go. Yes, he needs his men cave time. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, do men ever sound like nags? Does Lynn ever sound like a nag in any moment? Do you ever get that same vibe? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, there are times. And I think, I think most of the time when I would think, I don't know if nag is the word for it, but when he's pushing, it's usually when we're under pressure to get things done. Have you made that phone call? Have you done that? Did you, did you go yet? Did you, it's, mm -hmm. Once again, I think it has to do with tone. And then also usually if he's saying it, um, I think for me it's timing also because if I'm in the middle of something and it seems like I can be in the middle of a really good show and he just walks in and asks me a question, like, okay, just a second, let me pause so I can focus on you. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it goes back and forth. That's encouraging yeah. to hear. So this is a good one um, as husbands, as family, as spiritual leaders. We have a question out from our Santan campus asking, what can I do as a husband to be the spiritual leader of my family? What can they do as a husband to be the spiritual leader of the family that their wives are craving them to be? So I love that Santan asked this particular one because this was the challenge uh, for this week. So that's pretty cool. Um, I think we get this where 
we get very mystical about this, and men make this into this thing that says, you know, what is this having Bible studies with my kids at night and, you know, being a theologian, and what does it mean to be the spiritual leader? And then because it becomes this huge thing that you can't get your hands on and can't measure, I think men just kind of abrogate it and go, well, I, I don't even know how to try this thing. And I think it's actually way, way, way simpler than, than we try to make it. I, I would say to every man, being the spiritual leader of your home is simply answering this question. What would it mean for my home to be more Christ-centered than the home I grew up in? What would that mean? What, what are the behaviors you would do? What would, what would that have to happen in order for the home that you're leading to be more Christ-centered than the home you grew up in? And if you can cause that to happen, if you can make two or three decisions that make that true of your home, then you're taking spiritual leadership. And uh, so I, I just want to, I'll share a couple things that I think are super, super simple that a guy can do uh, that would literally position him as the spiritual leader uh, of his home. Great. Super simple. Guys, if you just simply said, our family is going to go to church every Sunday. Period. Our family, the Smith family, we go to church every Sunday. We don't wake up on Sunday and decide if we're going to church. We, we don't wait to see, you know, how much homework we've got. Our plan, the plan of the Evers family is we go to church every single Sunday because I've made that decision for our family, which means then you have to be the one following through on that. It can't be your wife trying to get the kid. You've got to say, hey, guys, it's not an option. We go to church every Sunday, but you realize that very that simple decision would put you in spiritual leadership in your home. Uh, the second one that I would push out there is: uh, Would you just uh, require that your family be two-hour Christians? So, uh, what I mean by that is simply this: that. Uh, there are other programs that go on in the church that are all about maturity. They're all about getting better Bible to your family. So if you've got a child uh, who's in grade school, we've got a Kaboom program on Tuesday nights. If, if I was trying to establish spiritual leadership for my home, I would say to my eight-year-old child, you're going to Kaboom uh, every Tuesday night. That, that's what you do because you're going to be that second-hour Christian. We're not going to just call ourselves Sunday-only Christians. We're going to be more involved than that. Uh, if I had a young person in the youth group, I'd be saying, hey, you go to youth group. And they go, I hate youth group. They all hate youth group. I don't care if you hate youth group. I don't care. Because here's what you know. You know that when they're in youth group, they're going to be getting Bible, and they're going to be learning in a community with their peers. So I don't care whether you like it or not. You can go sit there like a bump on a log. I don't care. You're going. Because you realize what you're doing is you're establishing a spiritual standard of participation. So you're going to go. And it'd be a lot nicer if you actually enjoyed yourself because then you'd have more fun. But if you just want to sit in the back, I don't care, you're going to youth group. Setting that spiritual standard. Now, here's the thing, men, that you need to know as you get ready to do that. It also means that you're going to have to model it. So that means you're going to have to be going to the mine or you're going to have to be in a small church down the hall. You're going to have to model being a two-hour Christian to your kids and to your family. But doing that would start setting an example. And then um, the final thing that I would put on there is, I don't know any other way to say it, dates with kids. And, and here's what my encouragement to you as a dad would be, that once a month, 
uh, you take out one of your kids. So each month you would rotate to a different kid. And whatever you're going to do, I don't care if you're going to go bowling together, if you're going to go watch a movie together, if you're going to go to ice cream together, I don't care. But what you're going to with intentionality do with your child is somewhere while you're out together, you're going to ask them this question. How are you and God? Just ask them that and see how they respond. And, and they may blow you off and go, oh, I'm fine, I'm blah, blah, blah. No, I just want to know, how are you and God? And you may even have some things you've been noticing through the last couple of weeks. You may say, you know, because I just noticed, you know, a couple of weeks ago, man, you were really short with your mom. You were pretty disrespectful. And I just, so I just wonder, I'm just asking honestly, how are you and God? And men, this is akin to checking oil. That's what you do in your car, right? You check oil, and if it's a little bit low, you pour a little oil in. And this question gives you the opportunity to do that in the life of your children. Hey, how are you and God? And if you notice the oil is low, then you're just going to take that opportunity to be really a priest for your home, a pastor to your home, and you're going to pour a little God into the moment. You're, you're going to give fatherly, godly advice to your children, which, guys, think about that. That five minutes now positions you as your children's spiritual leader. And, and I would just suggest, guys, that all three of these things are such low-hanging fruit, there's not a man in this room as long as you know Jesus as your Savior, that could not do those things and begin to exhibit spiritual leadership. Lisa, would you like to add anything with that? Sure. I believe it's very, very important that if you've asked your spouse, your husband, to take this role, that you allow him to do it. And that would mean that there are going to be times that he may make decisions that you do not always agree with. And there's many times he makes decisions that I don't always agree with. But I've asked him to be the spiritual leader of our house, so therefore I'm going to trust and respect. And I know at the end of the day he is going to take responsibility for our family. He's going to answer to God for those things. So if I'm going to ask him to do it, then I'm going to trust him in doing it. And I think that part is very important. You have to give that over. So I love that you said that. Um, let me read you a passage real quick because I, I guarantee you there's some wives in this room and your husband's not taking spiritual leadership. And this leaves you in a quandary because you're all of a sudden like, hey, I want him to and I know it'd be good for our family. And so you feel the need to maybe nag him into doing it or pushing him into doing it. Or you feel the need to maybe pick up the spiritual leadership in, in his place and then you resent that. So let me read this passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And it simply says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe, so this guy's a non-believer, he's not even a Christian, they do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, without words, <laughs> by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of their lives. So ladies, let me just tell you, there may be moments that you kind of have to pick up this ball because he's not bringing the kids to church and you're bringing the kids to church. He's not praying at meals and so you're praying at meals. I'm, 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 but you've got to do that with an open hand and you've got to do that without trying to shame him for not doing it, okay? So that he can see the way you're behaving and then the Holy Spirit can convict him about assuming that responsibility. But if you begin to say, hey, why aren't you, and how come, and you know the kids need it, he's going to hear that as nagging. He just will. And he may resist doing it, not because he doesn't think it's the right thing, but simply to win the argument. And you, you, may, you may deadlock yourselves the rest of your lives. 
So ladies, I'm just going to say to you, this is a great moment to pray. There's a movie out right now, and I would, I would suggest every family in this church go see the movie. It's such a powerful movie. It's called War Room. Yes. We just went and saw it the other night. Yeah. Great and it's, movie. It's the story of a gal who's kind of far from God herself, meets a lady. She starts telling the lady all the problems of her husband. This elderly lady has the wisdom to challenge her to say, would you begin to pray for your husband instead of nagging your husband? To which she's terrified because she knows if she stops telling her husband how he's failing, he'll never get it right. But she takes the challenge. She begins to pray for her husband. And this is a really powerful move, the absolute transformative power of a wife's prayers. And, and I would just encourage every couple, I'd encourage single to go see it. It's a Christian movie, which means it's kind of lifetime quality. Cheesy. You know, it's kind of yeah, a little cheesy, cheesy. but the, the, the story is a really powerful story. It's called War Room. You ought to go see it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's good date night, guys. Yeah. Out. So that's it for time. We want to thank you guys so very much. Can we give them a warm round of applause for being so open with us? Thank you.